been three weeks. I had uh, two weeks of study leave. Um, and, uh, I had a wonderful course at Puritan Theological Seminary on the history of Reformed homiletics. But I won't burden you with everything I learned at the course this morning. <laughs> I just want to say to Kenan and Nita, you're going to be missed a great deal. But we know that you are going to be a great blessing where you are going. And uh, enjoy all the good music. And Nashville's got the, all the great gifted musicians flock there. So, um, But now we know we have a place to come and stay to visit, right? Thank you. That's an open invite. <laughs> Well, we're in Philippians uh, chapter 3. We're in Philippians chapter 3. The theme is joy and rejoicing. Rejoice, the Lord is King. Last time we were in Philippians, we looked at the transitional verse of 3 verse 1. We considered how Paul drew from the Psalms as he calls the church to emulate faithful Israel and rejoice in the Lord. This imperative will be the governing imperative of the following two chapters, and we see it repeated in 4 verse 4. So we know that this is the grounding imperative that Paul calls the church to, this theme. Rejoice, so you must rejoice in the Lord. And this week we will look at verses uh, 2 to 11 and consider the marks of a vibrant and authentic Christianity by looking at its contrast, the devastating effects of cultural Christianity. In other words, we will consider who it is that can take comfort in the gospel and so rejoice in the Lord. And who it is that should have serious cause for concern. Paul will address the concern of false teaching that threatened the church at Philippi. And he will give us the principles for understanding false teaching in general. So I want you to listen carefully as we read together from God's word. We'll read Philippians 3 verse 1 through 11. This is the word of God. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish." in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Let us pray. Father, grant us now this morning understanding into this passage, and I pray that you will bring conviction, repentance where that is needed, and comfort 
where that is needed this morning. We pray this in Christ's name, to his glory. Amen. As I've said already this morning, we will be looking at the devastating effects of cultural Christianity. Of course, Paul is dealing with the nature of Jewish religion in this text, but the rationale is the same. In Paul's day, there were those who taught that Gentiles can only receive the promises of God when they become Jews, and that those born into Jewish households automatically lay claim to the promises because of their heritage. In our time, there are some who believe that simply because they are born to Christian parents and raised in a Christian home, they automatically are Christian. So this morning we'll take a close look at this diagnosis that Paul gives us here and we will see three things from this text. We will see, firstly, that cultural Christianity places our confidence in the wrong place. Secondly, that cultural Christianity produces a sense of self-righteousness. And thirdly, that cultural Christianity keeps us from the blessings of the gospel. Let us take a look at the first of these. Cultural Christianity places our confidence in the wrong place. The first thing I want us to notice about the text is that Paul's main concern is about where we put our confidence. Where is your confidence? See 3 verse 3. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. You see that negative? Now the strict warning against those who mutilate the flesh of verse 1 is given against Jewish false teachers who taught that the benefits of the gospel can only be received by adherence to the Mosaic law. In other words, if you want to receive any benefit from the Jewish Messiah, you have to first become a Jew outwardly. Now, that's a very clever argument indeed. It makes perfect sense. I mean, of course, we have the Old Testament, which extols the law of God. And we know that if anyone wanted to um, had, had receive the benefits under the Old Covenant, they certainly had to become a Jew. They had to be circumcised. They had to keep the dietary requirements. The law itself requires this. And so we know that here in the first century, there was a great deal of confusion going around as to what happens to Gentiles when they come to faith. What happens indeed? Now, there were great men of the first century that had big problems and had to be corrected in their understanding on these things. And we consider, for example, Peter himself, the disciple of Christ, the great apostle. We know in Acts chapter 10, if you recall that great passage in Acts 10, we have the account of Peter and Cornelius, the Gentile God-fearer. And there in Acts 10, we have Peter commissioned to go and see Cornelius, who who had questions about Christianity, was interested about Christianity. And so Peter had to go and proclaim the gospel. But before Peter went, he had to get, be prepared by God himself. And he had this great vision of the sheet that came down from heaven. And on the sheet was all the animals that were forbidden under the law. And God said to him, take and eat. And Peter refused. No, I'm a Jew. The law forbids these things. I will not. And take and eat. And the Lord said to him, Do not call unclean what I have declared to be clean. What was God doing to Peter? Well, Peter was a Jew, and Jews in the first century did not eat with Gentiles. 
And so Peter had to go into this house of this Gentile and Cornelius and had given the gospel, but he wouldn't do it if he wasn't commanded. And so God was correcting his understanding. God was saying, now the way to the Gentiles has been opened. Now I'm declaring them to be clean. So Peter went in and he proclaimed the gospel. And what happened? The strangest thing in Peter's mind happened. The Holy Spirit descends upon the Gentiles. Did they become circumcised first? No. Did they keep all the dietary requirements of the Old Testament? No. Did they become Jews first? No. Peter marveled at this. And he said, oh, look, who can withhold the waters of baptism from these who have received the Spirit just as we have? This was a remarkable thing. The Spirit was promised under the Old Covenant in Jeremiah, especially when the New Covenant comes that God is going to write the laws of Israel upon the hearts of people. This was the promise of the Holy Spirit. We have passages in Ezekiel. We have passages in the prophets that promise a new time to come, a new age breaking in, in which all people will enjoy the benefits of the Spirit. And that great passage in Joel, quoted by Peter in Acts chapter 2, we have that prophecy that men and women will both prophesy. Everyone will have the Spirit. This was a Jewish promise. It was promised under the Old Covenant to Jews. But now, this is given to Gentiles. What a remarkable act. Peter had to be corrected in his understanding. It took a while for this to set in, because we know that Peter had a problem with this even in Galatia, when he went later on. He didn't want to eat with the Gentiles. And Paul called him a hypocrite to his face. You see, it's a trouble for a Jew to come to an understanding of these things. In the first century, this was a big problem. In fact, it was such a big problem that and there were Christian Pharisees that had become Christians. And they said, oh no, the Gentiles have to keep the law. And so they called a big council in Acts chapter 15. They went and they decided whether or not this was so. And who gave testimony? It was Peter. Peter himself, who saw this first breaking of the Spirit upon the Gentiles, said they had to receive the Spirit without the requirements of the law, just as we Jews had. You see the problem, folks. This was not a strange thing. It was a difficult problem to have in the first century. So now here are still teachers going around, and they are continuing to teach. Even though the Jerusalem Council had decided authoritatively that the Gentiles have received the grace of the Spirit and the benefits of the gospel and the benefits of Jesus purely by faith in Christ, and therefore they're not required to keep the law, though they need to keep some moral elements of it. But nonetheless, they don't need to become Jews in order to have the benefits of the gospel because they already have received it without becoming Jews. It's new revelation, folks. It's fulfillment. Jesus has fulfilled the law on our behalf and now he's ushered a new age. He's opened wide the gates. Both Jew and Gentile are going to come in. And guess what? That's exactly what Ephesians is all about. The coming together of the Jew and the Gentile into one church by the Holy Spirit through faith in Christ. But you see these teachers had a trouble with it. They were going around teaching that, no, these Gentiles have to be circumcised. Still a problem here in this church in Philippi. Still a problem in the hearts of people. There's something that they must do. Surely they can't just get the benefits of Jesus. 
they must do something for that benefit to receive that benefit. Well, it's interesting, folks, that that very attitude still is in our own hearts. We want to do something, don't we? That remains true even of us today, even now. We want to do something in order to know that we are saved. Surely it can't just be all grace. Surely it can't just be faith in the gospel. Surely there's something that we must do in order to earn God's favor, to earn his pleasure. No, no, this text is going to teach us very clearly that there's nothing you can do or should do. It is given purely by grace and the gospel. Well, this is where Paul's going, dear friends. You see, here these Jewish false teachers were saying that God was, do, God, God was not doing something new, but Paul was saying that God is doing a new work and extending his grace to the Gentiles and incorporating them into the new covenant apart from the works of the law and purely by faith in Christ. Why? Paul explained this in Galatians 3, verse 10 to 14 and 23 to 29, that the purpose of the law was twofold. What was the purpose of the law? Well, firstly, it was to give the knowledge of sin. It still is that purpose. It still has a good purpose. If you think you're perfect, you can measure yourself against the law. The purpose of the law is to bring knowledge of sin. But the point of the law, the entire purpose of the law, was to bring the coming of the Messiah. That was the goal that Paul says in Galatians. And once the Messiah had come, the purpose of the law had reached its climax. And therefore, the works of the law were no longer required for covenant membership. This was a technical argument that Paul presented to the Galatian churches. It is faith in the Messiah and the gift of the Holy Spirit. That is what marks the new covenant believers. But these Jewish teachers refused to agree and taught that Gentiles could have no confidence in their salvation if they didn't become Jews through circumcision. But Paul's argument was that circumcision itself is only an external sign that incorporate people into the old covenant. But under the new covenant, the Spirit circumcises our hearts and incorporates us into the covenant by faith in Christ. You see, that's the whole purpose of the Lord's self, is to reveal your sin and your need for a Redeemer. And now that the Redeemer's come, God sends His Spirit into the hearts of those whom He's bringing into this new covenant and circumcises your hearts. That's why Paul can say, we are the circumcision. Paul is saying, we are the covenant members. We are the ones who have been incorporated into the covenant of God. Paul says, those who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ are the true people of God. You see, salvation, friends, is an act of God. And anyone who finds themselves believing in Christ and trusting in Him for their salvation can know that God has given them the Spirit to enable them to believe and glory in Christ apart from works of the law. Now, it's interesting that Paul uses this word here, glory in Christ. You see that in, in the second verse? It also can be translated as boasting in Christ. That's what we looked at last time we looked at in, in 3 verse 1. I'll touch on that very momently. And that's got an Old Testament background. Jeremiah 9 verse 23 to 24. 
Listen to what Jeremiah 9 verse 23 to 24 says. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. It's interesting that that phrase does not say, let the man boast in the law. And his good works. No, let the one who knows me boast in this, that he knows the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. Paul takes that very phrase and brings it in here and says, we are the ones who boast in Christ. We are the circumcision. We are the covenant people of God. Who? Those who have the Spirit those who have been brought into the new covenant by faith. You see, the teachers here try to shift the Philippians' confidence away from Christ, back onto the external works of the Old Testament law. And this was Paul's key concern. Paul's key concern was here that the Old Testament way of covenant relationship no longer exists. You can't go back to that law and do it again because it no longer is a way of pleasing God. It has found its fulfillment in Christ. This is why dispensationalism is so false because it teaches there are two tracts, classical dispensationalism, one tract for the Jew, one for the Gentile. There's no two tracts, friends. The law has reached its climax in Christ and the only requirement for entering into the new covenant is faith in Christ. That's it. Because that is the evidence of the Spirit. Now, there is in some quarters of the globe a resurgence in Judaistic thinking. You know, some my own country in South Africa, there's a group that goes around, the teachers, you should be circumcised, you should keep the law, you should carry phylacteries, grow your beards, and all the external requirements. Gentiles. <laughs> that are teaching that one should go back to the Lord, a small group. But most of us are not going to be confronted with this kind of false teaching. We don't have uh, Jewish believers coming to the church and saying, well, in order to inherit the promises of the Messiah, you need to be circumcised. We're not confronted with this problem generally. But the problem we do have is that many of us have grown up in a Christian culture. Many of us sitting here this morning have grown up in Christian homes or have grown up with some kind of Christian influence. We might have gone to church as children, been baptized or christened, and even be catechized and confirmed in a church. Perhaps if you had grown up in a Baptist household, you may have been dedicated or even baptized when you were very young. I know some people who were baptized when they're four years old. And these are all well and good. But if you put your confidence in these things, we are no different from the Judaizers on Paul's day. If we believe that we are Christians purely because of how we were raised or where we were raised, or, then there is a problem. In other words, 
if you have never had holy affections for Christ as a result of serious convictions of your sin, which is the purpose of the law, and if you don't believe that you have been redeemed from slavery to sin, having deserved God's eternal wrath, if you believe that doing good things and going to church is what makes you a believer, and of course saying your prayers at dinner time and perhaps even reading your Bible, you may well be putting your confidence in the wrong place. There are thousands of people in the Western world who tick the Christian box on a questionnaire because they believe that being born in a Christian country makes them a Christian. There are thousands of people who go to church Sunday after Sunday thinking they are Christians when they have never been regenerated by the Spirit of God. And if this is you this morning, may I tell you that you are in grave danger. You cannot stand on your parents' faith. You cannot rely upon that once repented sinner's prayer that you prayed at the Billy Graham crusade. Or the fact that you've been catechized and know all the doctrines in your head. You need to love Christ. Boast in him. You need to be passionate about the gospel. You need to be serious about your sin. These are the marks of someone who's been born again. Remember Jesus? Who did he speak to? In John chapter 3. One of Israel's elite teachers, Nicodemus. And you'd think Nicodemus has got it all down. He knows the law. He interprets it for the people. He understands. He's even interested in Jesus because he comes at night. Nicodemus has a heart for God. He's pious. Jesus said, you have to be born again. You have to be born again. He's a Jew. He has all the right to inherit the promises of God. He's faithful. You must be born again. Dear friends, it needs to be the Spirit working in your heart, a supernatural act of God that changes you. And how do you know that you've been changed? Holy affections, sorrow over sin, a transformed life. Secondly, cultural Christianity produces a sense of self-righteousness. Oh, this is the worst thing about religion. If you want to know the worst thing about religion, it's self-righteousness. Even Christian religion, dear friends, the fact that you think you are better than others. Oh, this was the Jewish day, wasn't it? They thought they were better than the Gentiles. In fact... This whole play that Paul calls him out here and says, look out for the dogs in verse 2. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. He's, he's using irony here because the, the Jewish people used to call Gentiles dogs because, they, you know, see, in the first century, their dogs weren't really pets. They ran around the street, streets, and they were scavengers. They cleaned up all the mess, the carcasses, and all the bad stuff. Dogs were known for that. You throw your garbage out in the street, and the dogs will come clear it up. You know, your chicken bones and whatever you had for dinner last night. All the leftovers, you throw it out there, and the dogs will come clear it up. 
but they were always bickering among one another, fighting among each other. And the, the Jews saw these Gentiles as similar people. They have no home. They're always bickering among one another. They have no morality. They eat all the scraps of all the religious idolatry in the world. Ah, but we have pride in our Jewish heritage. Our Christians can be like that too. <laughs> we can be like that too. You see, the second problem with cultural Christianity is that it produces a sense of self-righteousness rather than humility. Paul recognized this in his Jewish heritage. Look in the second part of 3 verse 4. He writes, If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And then he gives a list of his Jewish cultural accolades. See that list? There's quite a great resume. It's remarkable. It starts with circumcision. And it ends with this statement. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Can you say that? Well, you have problems if you say that. How can Paul say this? Look at verse 6. What did he say then in verse 6? As to zeal a persecutor of the church. How could Paul possibly say that he was righteous according to the law and in the same sentence say that he persecuted the church of Christ? What does he mean? Well, I remember that Paul was a Jew. And in his mind, he was opposing the heretical Jewish sect. Much like Elijah had done with the prophets of Baal. He was in the long trajectory of those who zealously tried to purify Israel and oppose those who were teaching false doctrine. In fact, Paul was so convinced that Jesus was a false teacher and those who followed him in apostate Jews that he was willing to put them to death. But listen to what Paul writes in 1 Timothy 1 verse 13. I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, a violent man, Yet because I had acted in ignorance and unbelief, I was shown mercy. You see, Paul can say I was blameless according to the law. He was an outstanding Jew. Yet he recognized how his pride in this Jewish identity produced in himself a sense of self-righteousness, as if he was earning God's favor by what he did. This is clearly what Paul means by having reason for confidence in the flesh. Out of his self-righteousness, he thought he was better than others. He saw his Jewish heritage as a guarantee of God's favor. He thought himself better because of his cultural accolades. He was a rabbi. He was excelling. And so it is of those who believe that moral living and church attendance is what makes a person a Christian. You've got to be very careful here. In fact, we could even read our Bibles and listen to sermons knowing all the good theology, yet have confidence in the flesh rather than confidence in Christ. How do you know whether or not you have confidence in the flesh or confidence in Christ? Well, Francis Schaeffer said that the mark of the Christian is love. Andrew Murray said that the mark of the Christian is humility. Both of these, love and humility, are the fruit of those who have come to Christ as a broken and unrepentant people. That's what the law does when you read it properly. It humbles you. Because it makes you realize that you're not perfect. You see? And when the law breaks you and you come to Christ and you repent of your sin, you realize that you are not better than anyone else. It produces a humility in you. 
This is Paul's point in chapter 2 when he urges the church to be humble in the same way Christ was. There's no place for self-righteousness in the life of a believer, dear friends. If we truly believe that we are sinners who have been forgiven of a multitude of sins, the number of which we cannot even begin to count, it will be very hard for us to number the sins of others. But yet, if we have confidence in the flesh, if we trust in ourselves and our good works, then we will indeed see ourselves as a Hebrew of Hebrews and as righteousness under the law, blameless. That's how we'll see ourselves. But when the gospel changes our hearts, as it did with Paul, we will come to confess along with Paul in 1 Timothy 1 verse 15. This is a trustworthy saying, worthy of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. This is the perspective of a regenerated man or woman. The way Paul puts it here is, but whatever gain I had, I counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. You see, this is the perspective of the person who, in the words of John 1 verse 13, is born not of blood, which is cultural descent, nor of the will of the flesh, good deeds, nor of the will of man, intellectual ascent, but of God, regeneration. Is that you this morning? Are you humbled before the God of majesty as you look at yourself and your own life? And that humility leads to love and humility towards others? Or are you holding on to your righteousness? Thirdly, cultural Christianity keeps us from the blessings of the gospel. This is the worst effect. A very devastating effect is that it keeps us from the blessings of the gospel. Now, friends, there is great benefit in holding on to a Judeo-Christian cultural identity. It's got good morality, excellent work ethic, many good things that come with it. But this is nothing compared to a genuinely regenerated heart which suffers loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Paul himself had a lucrative career as an intellectual in Judaism. And yet, when he came to Christ, he lost everything. Friends, family members, honor as a rabbi, eventually his very life. But Paul doesn't regret or dwell on the past. Even now, Paul considers the value of his cultural heritage in Judaism as rubbish, literally excrement. Why? Because through the gospel, Paul has gained far more than he ever would have in his own strength. <laughs> in Judaism, Paul's confidence wasn't in himself and the righteousness that comes from the law and his obedience. And while Paul maintained that he was blameless according to the law, the term blameless is not perfection. But through the gospel... Paul has gained a righteousness that comes through faith in Christ, a righteousness of God that depends on faith. This righteousness isn't just blameless, friends. It's perfect. It's perfection. And that's what's required if you are to enter the kingdom of heaven. You are to be perfect, spotless, pure, not just blameless in the Society in which you live. 
perfect. Well, Paul said that here is perfection, the righteousness of God through the faith, the depends on faith, the righteousness of Christ. What is this? It is the imputed righteousness of Christ. It is granted to every single person who repents of their sin, comes to Christ, and humbly submits to His authority, and by the Spirit is regenerated and brought into union with Christ, and that person becomes one with Christ and has communion with God, and that person has a perfect standing before God. That's how you enter heaven. You can do it on your own and see how that fares for you. But let me tell you, it will end in weeping and gnashing of teeth. You see, cultural Christianity keeps us from the blessings of living the resurrection life now and keeps us from the promise of a future resurrection from the dead. Why? Why? Because cultural Christianity is not grounded in the righteousness of Christ, but rather in the righteousness of self. But the worst thing of all is that it keeps the person from the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as my Lord. Personal, possessive, my Lord. It gives a person the impression that they are Christians when they are not because they have inherited a moral sense of right and wrong, because they assume that their church attendance and religious ceremonies make them Christian, and even their Bible readings and religious prayers are means that God is pleased with, but it is entirely void of genuine communion with Christ and the Spirit. It's formalism. It's dead works. There are great benefits in being raised in the church, friends. Wonderful benefits. You know, I was raised somewhat in the church, a little bit, somewhat not. But there are great benefits for those who have learned good moral sense from early on, good work ethic. But I know many people who call themselves Christians who work hard, they've got the ethic, they've got the moral standing, keeps them healthy, and it makes them wealthy. And they think they're Christians, but when you look at their lives where they spend their finances and their time, it's nowhere near a passionate love for Christ. Dangerous place. Paul did not want these believers to be subjected to a works-based religion that leads them on the path of destruction and robs them of the benefits of the gospel. And this was the best argument here that you can have. Become a Jew. Clear argument. Become a Jew. So what are the checks and balances a person can put in place in order to avoid being a cultural Christian? How can you know? Surely all of us at times fall into this category where we go through the motions and we come to church and we do all the things and even at times think that our good works are acceptable to God and He's pleased with us as a result. And it is true that God is pleased with His people. This is true. But why is God pleased with His people? Because He's pleased with His Son. Remember that voice out of heaven that we just read in In Matthew chapter 3, when Jesus was baptized, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. 
He is pleased with His Son. And if you are in His Son, He's pleased with you by virtue of His Son. That's the gospel. The gospel is to be found in Him. That's what Paul says. I want to be found in Him. Why? Because to be found outside of Him is dangerous. I want to be found in Him. That's where Paul wants to be. Because that's where God is pleased with you. In Christ. Not having a righteousness of my own. But one that comes by faith in Christ. So what do we do? How do we know? What are the checks and balances we put in place? Firstly, you have to assess where your confidence lies. Where's your confidence? Be honest with yourself. I'm getting to the age now, you know, they say 40 plus, so you start going for wellness checkups more regularly. My wife says I only have to start checking my, um, you know, for cancer and all those at 45. You know, in South Africa it's like 35, you know. Wellness checkups becomes part of a routine now, 40 plus. Those of you who are much further ahead, you know, you you're well aware of what the risks are. The older you get, the more risky life is. And so you go for your wellness checkups. Make sure that everything's in order. They can detect diseases early on. You can preventative rather than cures. And, you know, these are good things to do. But do you do a spiritual wellness checkup on yourself? You're supposed to. The scripture commands you to. Where does your confidence lie? How do I know? Well, do you think that your church attendance or your moral behavior has merit before God, even subtly? You've got to check those things. How do we check it? You go to the law. You see what perfection is required, and you say, I can't keep that. Romans 7. And then you look to Christ. And you look to his cross. You say, he has kept it on my behalf. And you come to him and be found in him. You've got to do a wellness checkup. Secondly, has your Christian faith produced in you a sense of moral self-righteousness or has it produced humility? That's a very big indicator here. Humility, dear friends, or self-righteousness. The gospel produces humility. It always does. God the Holy Spirit works in you. God does not like self-righteousness. You see, that was Jesus' whole thing against the Pharisees, right? They were the teachers. I think Jesus had a soft spot for these men because he took them on so often. He told them the truth so regularly because they had the truth. They had the moral being. They had, they, had, they had the word. They were teaching it well and they were living upright lives and they were encouraged people to do the same thing so that God himself would be favorable towards Israel. And they wanted, but yet in the process they thought they were better than others. Remember that Pharisee and the tax collector 
Pharisee looked, thank you, God, that I'm not like all these other men, especially this tax collector. Tax collector, oh, doesn't even look up to heaven. Humility. Paul commands that we have to be humble. Philippians chapter 2. Thirdly, have you come to see the surpassing worth of knowing Christ? Do you glory in him? Do you boast in him? Even if that means loss. The Judeo-Christian worldview is wonderful, leads to health, leads to wealth, leads to many good things. But does that wealth trip you up? Does it ensnare you? Or do you say, Jesus, I will give it all away for knowing him. I will give it all away. I will pursue him. I will only be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, not having all the health that I can have, not all having all the wealth that I can gain. I want to be in Jesus because when the wrath of God comes all over the earth and when the judgment comes, there's no safer place than to be in Jesus. And so I'll give up anything to get that. That's what Paul said. And you know how you know if you're doing that? Well, you live like it. How you spend your finances and how you spend your time indicates how serious you are about this commitment to Jesus. Friends, just because you are born into a Christian household, country, or community doesn't make you a Christian. It gives you many privileges and benefits. but it doesn't make you a Christian. A Christian becomes a Christian when God's Spirit regenerates that person and brings him or her into a new covenant through Christ, puts you in Christ, unified to him, and gives you his righteousness. And when you receive that, your life changes. You have new affections. You see the world differently. And you want to be with Christ. This is why Paul said in 3 verse 1, Rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Let's pray. Father, grant us, oh, the ability to diagnose our hearts, to check our affections. Do we love the things of this world? or the pride and prestige and honor of men more than loving you. Help us to be humble. Work in us by your Spirit. We need a fresh work of your grace in our hearts daily, for it fades as the day goes on, Lord. And even as the weeks go by and the months and the years Oh, keep us fresh because it wanes and we are weak and we need you. We need Christ. We're in a reminder of the gospel and the benefits of it and the beauties of it. And we need to be reminded time and again we'll forsake all things because knowing you through Christ Jesus our Lord is surpassing worth, surpasses any worth of all things in this world. What good is it that a man gains a whole world, it forfeits his soul. Let it not be so of us. We pray 
In Jesus' name, amen.